Happy April, everyone. Thank you so much to those of you who sent messages and support around our season two premiere. It's so gratifying to know that the conversations in this podcast are adding value to so many people's marketing and storytelling efforts. With that said, I'm super excited about my interview with today's incredible guest. But before we dive in, I'm turning over the mic to Ellie Eckert, a coffee enthusiast and small business owner who shares a book that she recommends for fellow conscious storytellers who are looking to create and lead with creativity and empathy. Here's Ellie. My name is Ellie Eckert. I'm the founder of a coffee editorial called City Brewed and a boutique roasting company called Written Coffee. Recently, I was inspired to stop scrolling when I came across a book called Applied Empathy. It's all about this idea that by using empathy, we can be better leaders, better employees, and even better business owners. We've become so connected to our smartphones and living in a digital world that we're rarely present or thoughtfully engaged with the people we come across in our day-to-day lives. Applied empathy makes you take a step back and really immerse yourself in this concept that by considering different work types or truly listening, we can build better relationships and even produce better results. I know I've been guilty of always living five minutes ahead rather than truly being focused and connected to the task at hand. Empathy isn't just about being nice or having sympathy for someone. It's about understanding, really understanding, your consumers, your colleagues, friends, and even yourself. The most meaningful change happens when people come together with open arms and open hearts. And this book really guides you in that process of how we can ask, listen, and think in a way that really produces these powerful results. If you're looking for a book that inspires you to stop scrolling, I really recommend Applied Empathy by Michael Ventura. But before I sign off, I'll leave you with a quote from the book. Leading with a new awareness that will undoubtedly aid you in not only understanding others better, but perhaps more important, understanding the truest aspects of your own self. Thank you so much again to Ellie for participating. Again, the book she spoke about is called Applied Empathy, and it's by Michael Ventura. Now, here's my interview with Grace Bonney of Design Sponge. When we think about thoughtful online storytelling, there's no one who does it quite like Grace Bonney of Design Sponge. As a true leader in the space, Grace's 15-year journey has left an indelible imprint in how we all self-publish and build viable businesses in the digital age. And outside of the brand's namesake website, Grace has built a creative empire that spans beyond the confines of the web to include two books, a magazine, and a podcast. But over time, Grace has seen the overall landscape evolve, and she and her team have grappled with how to maintain that balance of conscious publishing in a time that demands fast and fleeting content. And so earlier this year, Grace announced that 2019 will be Design Sponge's final year in business, and her candor truly inspired today's episode, in which she addressed the realities that come with championing slow content in certain industries, and the importance of using content and other online tools to build honest and lasting connections, both online and off. As you can probably tell, there's a lot we dug into in this conversation. So without further delay, here's the inimitable Grace Bonnie. (laughs) 
I guess my identity outside of work, which is like a big loaded question because part of the difficulty that I've felt like closing my business this year is who am I outside of my work and trying to figure that out. And I think right now, the things that I know that I enjoy outside of work are primarily the volunteering that I do here in the Hudson Valley where we live and the friendships that I've made through being a part of a couple different groups, um, namely a group called Angel Food East and the family of Ellenville, which is down here where we live, um, has really taught me a lot about what matters to me, which is which is giving back. And that's something that I hope I can do more of um, once I have a little bit more free time uh, once Design Sponge closes. That's amazing. And then obviously, you know, I'm sure people listening are familiar with Design Sponge, but if you don't mind in your own words, kind of giving a quick overview of I guess your journey and, you know, what led you to this point? Sure. So I have always really loved art and design. And when I graduated from college, I moved to New York City and was working in design PR and trying to figure out how do I get my foot in the door at a design magazine without having a degree in journalism um, or anything like that. So I was kind of working away and I opened a blog spot blog just as a way to talk about the things that I enjoy because handmade work and DIY work really didn't have a lot of support in more popular mainstream design media at the time, which was like 2003. And I started the blog as a way to just document the things that I was seeing, um, primarily in Brooklyn, where I was living at the time. And I think it was kind of a case of right time, right, right content. And the blog really took off and ended up kind of becoming the magazine that I always wanted to write for. And for the past almost 15 years, we've talked about everything related to home from house tours and DIY projects and makeovers to some of the like stickier, thornier issues that are connected to home, like class and race and gender and bigger issues. So it's kind of grown from a pretty straightforward design blog into a blog about all the things that happen in a home. Yeah, it's incredible to see how you've been able to marry those topics in such a natural and um, digestible way. So I'm sure that process has been interesting for you to kind of see unfold as well. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with my company, but essentially Connected Editorial came to life after a lot of recurring conversations I was having with brands uh, about their challenges and kind of finding this balance between publishing content frequently uh, while still maintaining that top quality. And so through those conversations, I started to recognize this pattern of us kind of moving towards a slowdown and embracing what I think is now being called the slow content movement. Um, So when we talk about slow content, what does that idea mean to you? It's funny. Anything with the word slow in front of it, I think used to be something that scared me because the nature of working on the internet is that everything has to be fast. And if you're not constantly changing and constantly evolving, you're essentially dying. And in my experience, that's kind of been the truth. Um, And so as I've moved in this direction of wanting to publish less often, think more about what we publish, take our time to really work on stories and not rush them, it's been this case of internally feeling much more satisfied and producing things that feel more thoughtful and more nuanced, but also recognizing that that's not always the type of content that does well on the internet. So slow content for me is something that I love, but that I've had a really difficult time turning into something that is as profitable as quote unquote fast content is. Absolutely. Do you 
look at any other kind of sites or brands who you think are kind of moving in that direction that might be the catalyst for a change and allowing us to be more slow and thoughtful and still having it be financially viable? It's interesting. I think that it is easier for brands that are smaller, not in terms of viewership, but in terms of the actual team. Um, I think Sherry and John from Old House Love have been a really great example of kind of quitting the more mainstream blog game and finding a version of what they did that is less frequent, but still as profitable, if not more. Um, but I think that's a little bit different when you're a team of two people versus like we're we're still a small team at Design Sponge. There's about 12 or 13 of us who are kind of working on a regular basis, um, although only two of us are full time. So it's it's a, it's a hard thing to do when you're a team. I, I don't know a lot of examples off the top of my head of people who are doing that in the design world who are running like a larger team of people. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I wonder, even with your team being so small, how you've kind of managed to maintain that consistency in terms of the quality and thoughtfulness across, you know, the site, to the books, to the podcast. I mean, there's so much to to manage. So if you have any tips or insights into that, I'm sure everybody would love to hear. It's interesting. I, I think the biggest tip I have is to cut yourself some slack because I haven't managed all the quality of those things well over the years. And I've definitely published things or allowed things to be published that I don't feel, you know, 100% great about. And I think that I've done that less often as we've published less frequently. And so I'm happy about that and happy to have the time to read something that's in the queue and then say, wait a minute, this is missing something. This isn't fully there yet. We need to pull back and add or edit or whatever that is. So I've had more space and time to do that. And I think part of that is trying to feel less guilty about that when it happens um, and to try to just accept that this is part of what it is to oversee other human beings who write because we all come from different backgrounds. We come from different points of view. And when you are trying to create content that doesn't alienate people or leave people feeling left out, it's sometimes hard to think about those points of view if it's not the one you were raised with. So it takes a lot of work and a lot of just constant editing. And there's no perfect place where suddenly everything is without an issue that needs to be checked. So I think for me, it became easier and less stressful when I accepted that that would be inevitable, that constant editing and constant checkups and you know, reminding people about the things that matter to us and what our missions are and the language we use and what we don't use, like just constant check-ins. That's a part of what it takes to maintain that. So I think when I stopped expecting it to happen automatically, I felt a lot calmer. Totally. And I think what's been great about what you do um, in that same kind of vein is that your content has been slow and thoughtful, but it's also been really honest. And I think that's going to be a pillar that we see in this slow content movement is just kind of creating this healthier, more honest landscape for for the stories that need to be told to thrive. Um, And I think, you know, obviously looking at your most recent announcement letter, that's, you know, that embodies it perfectly. So obviously, this year is going to be a big year for you. Um, Do you mind sharing a little bit more about the impetus for your recent decision to to close the business? Sure. So it's it's honestly, it's been in the works for a really long time. I think for at least a few years, I've felt a little not at home in my own digital home, primarily because, you know, I've been blogging for almost 15 years. And just as a human being, my interests have changed over the years. And my kind of obsessive 
love of design and decorating and DIY and all of that has just changed as I've gotten older. And it's not a judgment on any design or decorating or any of those interests. It's just kind of how I changed as I grew up and I became far less interested in sort of things and stuff and much more interested in listening to people behind those things. And and I've honestly just become more interested in listening rather than talking. And so that's kind of a hard thing when you run a design blog about design where you have to talk a lot. And I, I think that's part of the reason that over the years I've brought on more writers and people with different points of view. And I've really enjoyed listening to those people and providing spaces where other people could tell their stories in their own voice. And that's been a really nice way to kind of get around those feelings of not feeling entirely at home was kind of bringing other people into the home who did feel comfortable there. But then the reality of what the advertising market is right now and what are kind of how people consume digital content and what they expect of, you know, quote unquote publishers these days, it's just an enormous amount of work for very little financial return. And the volume of sponsored content that is necessary to stay afloat if you run a team is just, it's pretty astronomical. And I think the other factor that we kept bumping up against was the types of brands that can support sponsored content or ad campaigns or any sort of paid partnership with a blog like ours that would keep us afloat are companies that are are drastically ethically compromised. And that didn't sit well with a lot of our team. And that's something that I've been hearing from my ad team in particular for a while was like, how can we write about, you know, supporting people of all backgrounds and supporting people who need financial assistance and all of these things that we care about ethically, and then work with these companies that are known to not do any of those things. And we kept finding ourselves in this position of like, we have to make certain decisions and work with certain brands in order to stay afloat because we care about paying our writers. But at the same time, like, I don't have an answer for that question. I don't know how we can work with those companies if lots of things they stand for are things that we stand against. So we kind of just fell into this place of realizing that to move forward with the model that we all currently use, we would have to do things that didn't feel right to us. And I don't think any of us got into this as a way to just make quick money. And so at the end of the day, we kind of sat down and realized, I think it's just time to leave. Like if you're not enjoying the game and you don't want to play it anymore, rather than hating the game, maybe it's just time to find a new game. So that's kind of where we we settled. And I feel good with that because it would be really easy to sit down and feel kind of bitter or disappointed with the way things have changed. But I didn't want to be that way. I just wanted to, to recognize that if you're not enjoying the way something is working, rather than just kind of shaking your fist at the sky, like go to a place where you do feel comfortable working. And so I think we're all just trying to figure out individually, like what's that next chapter for all of us? That's yeah. I mean, embracing that change is sometimes the only way to go and, you know, kind of looking at what you've managed to maintain in terms of the tone of voice and, you know, the commitment to inclusivity on Design Sponge. It seems that the core of the site has really been based in this really honest writing. And as you mentioned, the landscape has evolved so much in the last, you know, five to 10 years. And I'm wondering when you think about the term writing and storytelling versus content, if you Mm. think that these two things are the same, Um, because I think now storytelling, you know, has become such a buzzword. um, And these two things have kind of become synonymous with one another. So if you, how do you think these two ideas can coexist in a way that builds businesses and communities? It's so interesting. I, oops, sorry. Let me turn off my timer. Sorry. Um, 
It's so fascinating. I feel like all storytelling can be content and all meaningful, honest writing can be content, but in no way is all content meaningful writing or meaningful storytelling. And I think that's kind of the trouble with the internet right now. And I've seen so many websites and online magazines and newsletters close recently that were the places that I went for things that were more substantive. And I think when we're talking about substantive writing, I'm not really talking about content. I think that word really has come to mean something that is like coal that you are shoveling into this stove that just needs to keep churning something out constantly. And to me, that's what the web feels like right now. And I know that's not every site by any means, but most sites are, and they're becoming really generalist and people want to read buzzier headlines and they want to read about celebrities everywhere, no matter what content you focus on, they want to hear about celebrities. And it's just become this weird place where you have to just create more and more and more for a larger quantity of people to please. And it doesn't feel good. And it's funny, my wife and I were making vision boards for 2019 and she had the word C-O-N-T-E-N-T on the board. And I read it as content and just had this like visual, very, very, or sorry, very visceral response to it and like shuddered. And she was like, no, I read that as content. And I was like, oh, I saw that as content. I wanted to like run across the room away from it. So it's kind of a word that for me feels a little gross right now. Um, And I think that storytelling can also be kind of a difficult word because I've seen it applied to what used to be more traditionally journalistic writing. And that's a place that gets sticky for me is I think all journalists can be bloggers. I don't think all bloggers can be journalists. And I put myself in the latter category. Like I'm a blogger. I'm not a journalist. I was not professionally trained. I don't follow the rigorous rules that a traditional journalist would follow. So I think that kind of in-between place of more personal, more everyday writing is where I feel most comfortable. And I think that type of writing is really a place, I don't know, it thrives on the internet, which is great, but I don't want it to be mistaken for, you know, journalism or for it to be mistaken for like very meaningful storytelling because it isn't always. And I've put out a ton of content that isn't great writing. So I think it's all really malleable and really flexible right now. And I think the goal is to just always look for something that feels honest. And for me, something feels honest if it's a bit more nuanced, like internet writing that is content based seems to feel very black and white, like very one sided, very all or nothing. And the writing that I'm drawn to right now is writing that seems to accept that there are lots of complicated ways to view things and that there's not one right answer. So whatever you want to call that, that's what I'm drawn to these days. Yeah. Do you have any stories or particular pieces that you can point to? Um, It's interesting. I'm trying to think of people that I respond to really strongly in that way. Um, there aren't a lot of people off the top of my head, um, especially in the design community. I think it's it's something that we aren't always naturally drawn to. I've, I've really appreciated the way that a lot of um, more mainstream design personalities like Emily Henderson have been talking about kind of how difficult it can be to talk about, I don't know, more complicated issues like race, like class, like economics, um, in a place where people aren't necessarily coming to hear about those things and what the blowback can be from that. And watching her try to navigate that publicly has been really interesting. Um, oh, you know who's really great at this? It's Justina Blakeney. Justina Blakeney writes really beautifully about her personal experience as a woman of color in design. She talks about it with, you know, no punches pulled. It's just, it's very honest. And you really need to listen to that from her point of view. And 
you know, it's just interesting to see the reaction from the community when this stuff happens. I think for certain topics, people have, you know, all sorts of time to listen to things like that. But in particular, I've noticed that when people talk about race, the design community still has a, a really long way to go in terms of listening to those narratives and those personal stories from people of color or people who are queer, from people who are disabled, like listening to those stories and not questioning them and not getting defensive is something that our community, including myself at times, are not great at absorbing without defensiveness or response. So I think it's happening. It just, it's, it's still figuring itself out. Yeah, it's happening slowly. And kind of on that note, is there anything that you would love to see change from the brands and peers in the community um, regarding how to thoughtfully tell stories and take a position on something through their content? I mean, I think anyone with a platform should be discussing these things, um, but only if it's something you feel safe to do. And I think that a lot of the people who have platforms right now are people like myself. They are white women who are relatively financially comfortable, and they are in positions where they can afford to speak up and say things or admit that they're wrong or admit mistakes and talk openly about those without as much fear of retribution as a lot of other people. And so I think that I would love to see more of the community kind of step up and own their mistakes, own the things they need to learn, you know, figure out how to embrace inclusivity or substantive diversity within their own teams and within their own communities. And frankly, a lot of us just need to listen a hell of a lot more and talk a hell of a lot less. And so I'd love to see that happen. I would love to see people make more space for different points of view and different personalities and different backgrounds. Um, I don't see it happening a ton. I don't see a lot of brands embracing it in a way that's substantive, where people are paid for those stories or paid for their input or being part of campaigns and, you know, especially visual marketing that we see a lot of on social. I think a lot of brands are embracing the idea of visual diversity and throwing people in campaigns, but then not paying them well or not giving them like meaningful roles within that brand. So I'd like to see that change for sure. I think that would would go a really long way. And another thing I'd love to see sort of stop or evolve in our community is call-out culture. I think that it's happening in a way that is stopping real conversation. And, you know, it's less comfortable conversation, but it's the important conversation we need to have, which is slowing down and taking the time to talk about something when it goes wrong to understand what happened, to learn from it, and to try to do better. And I think right now the internet is really into like, let's all jump on this person, burn them, and then hope they never come back. And, you know, our, our community is going to disappear really fast if we burn anybody that's made a mistake. And I mean, I've made a billion mistakes. And so I think that our community needs to slow down and listen when things happen and get out of the way. If it's not your community that's been offended or upset and listen to the people who have and see what they have to say instead of just jumping on the kind of, you know, cancel that person culture that we're currently dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think when we're able to do that, we really make space to learn from one another. And that's why I'm personally so fascinated in these kind of slow movements that are happening across food and fashion. Um, because at the very least, they're helping their communities and their customers better understand uh, the nuances of what it takes to make products and you know, the people behind their products and just kind of the details that sometimes get overlooked in this very loud and fast-paced landscape. So with that said, how do you think this kind of idea is translating into the design world? And how do you think 
kind of being at the forefront of celebrating these conscious and slow brands and individuals has made you a more conscious storyteller? It's interesting. I think the design community has struggled with this a lot. Um, we're see, I see it a lot more in the food community than I do design right now. And I pay attention to that community because my wife works in food and I have seen the way that slow food and local food and farm to table and, you know, all of the kind of buzz phrases that are happening right now. There is in that community a space for dialogue about what does slow food mean? What does farm to table mean? Who are the people who are producing this food? Are they being paid fairly? You know, why does slow food tend to favor the privileged and have a higher price point? And why do we value certain food types more than others? Like those nuanced conversations are happening in food. I don't see those happening in design right now. And I think that we understand and love and embrace the handmade community and in theory understand how much work goes into producing something that is made by hand or that's, you know, made in a slower process. And we have this amazing tool of social media to see all of the steps and the time and the handwork that goes into all of these pieces that we love to like and share and even buy online. But we have a really hard time when it comes to understanding the price point of that or understanding what it costs to ethically source materials that whether it's like wool that you're making a sweater out of or, you know, some sort of fabric that you're making a rug or a pillow out of, like those are things we need to talk about more openly and ethical sourcing, fair price points, livable wages, you know, especially how we support like the current trend of people in design kind of going to different countries and buying up things that are made by especially indigenous women in different parts of the world and then reselling them here in the U.S. for a lot more money. There's a lot of gray area there that we need to be talking about. And I just, I don't see it happening because I do think um, we tend to get really defensive about those conversations and try to, you know, really quickly be like, well, I'm not doing that. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And I just want to have these conversations without the defensiveness, but I just, I don't see it happening yet. And I'm hoping that it, it might evolve into that. I think that as we see these conversations starting to happen in the world of food or in the world of politics, and especially in the world of like fast fashion, I'm hoping that we'll start looking at it design wise. Um, but you know, we're always going to have big box stores. Like the kind of essential dilemma is people might understand why a handmade piece of furniture costs more but that doesn't mean that people don't need cheaper, faster furniture because not everybody can afford the price point of handmade work. So it's kind of an ongoing discussion that I'd love to see happen in a larger way in the design community of how do we make design accessible for people? And I don't have an answer for it. I just think it's something we have to really kind of talk more about. Absolutely. Do you have any kind of resources or stories that you published on the site that you could point people to to kind of jumpstart some of these conversations? We, I've, I've written a couple essays at the, at the end of last year, I wrote some essays about class and design and sort of the quandary that we've been stuck at design sponge wise, which is people associate us with handmade work and a place where people support handmade artists and trying to understand why those things cost more, but at the same time, having a percentage of our audience that in no way can afford those pieces. And those people aren't saying handmade work is overpriced. They're saying, I get it, but I still can't afford it. So please keep writing about big box stores because that's the furniture that I can afford. Um, And I want both of those audience segments to feel respected and heard. And so I've written a lot about like, how do we talk about these things without judgment and understanding the problems that people have with the way that big box furniture is made or sourced or how those workers are treated or paid 
but then also understanding that not every American can afford to buy that furniture that's handmade from Portland, you know, out of a tree that somebody waited for three years to dry in their backyard. Like there's just different worlds and they're all valid and important. And so we've tried to talk about these things with Design Sponge and we did that. The one essay I would would suggest checking out is the one that we wrote about class and design. And it really only kind of scratched the surface and people had a really hard time digesting that um, because I think they felt the word class, much like the way the word race gets brought up, I think they saw the word class and saw classism and then felt as if we were calling people classist if they supported that work. And it's difficult to talk about those big issues without people feeling defensive or projecting. And so, you know, it's something we're still working on, but that piece is a good place to start because there were a lot of really interesting points of view shared from our audience and people who said, you know, this is how much money I make. I can, you know, barely afford to buy like this one thing. So don't judge me for wanting to shop at, you know, Target or West Elm or Walmart or wherever, because that's where I can afford to shop. And it's just, it's been fascinating. And I've seen it a lot in the kind of Marie Kondo moment we're having right now of people talking about minimalism and how there is a bit of classism that comes into that as well in some cases. And I find all that fascinating. And so I'm I'm hoping we'll see more of that. I have seen it pop up in the Marie Kondo conversations. Um, this kind of wanting to unpack the idea of what minimalism can mean or represent to different people in different cultures. Yeah, absolutely. And I know this is a very transitional time for you, uh, but I have to say, I would love to see you spearhead a series of offline conversations around this. Um, I think part of the slowdown that I'm seeing too is we're able to better start these conversations and kind of connect on a more human level once we remove the screen. So just throwing that out there. Yeah, it it does happen in person. We, the side project that I work on is our print magazine called Good Company. And it's also a podcast that I run and we're having those conversations in person. And in particular, the, um, I did like a traveling tour this past year for both issues where we had panel discussions with women in different parts of the country. And We talked about class and race and economics and all of these things that are really sticky. And you're right. It is a lot easier. It's still not easy, but it is a lot easier to discuss in person than it is in um, an online format. I find it's even easier to discuss in print because you're not getting the immediate kickback you get when you talk in person. But I do think that when you see someone espouse a point of view or a personal story, it's, it's a lot harder to just immediately cancel them or jump down their throat if you disagree, if you're sitting next to this living, breathing person for whom that has been their experience. So I do think those in-person conversations are, are really important. And a lot of my work is trying to figure out how you make those conversations accessible because, you know, it's hard to put on a free event, but I also don't want to charge for tickets if I don't have to. But I also have to travel somewhere and figure out how to pay for that in my time. So it's tough. I, I love in-person stuff, but we've we've always struggled to make in-person financially stable. Right. Right. But, you know, any opportunity to do it, I think, just opens the door to more authentic connection and interactions um, and just gives more people time to think before responding. And generally, I think there's been a lot of self-reflection from founders in design, fashion, media, just across, across the spectrum about kind of slowing down and thinking about what it means to create and maintain something with intention that is sustainable. 
And obviously, when we give ourselves the time to really think about what that means, we're able to kind of let the questions uh, that need to be addressed come to the forefront. So I'm wondering if there was any one question that you wish people asked you more often, whether it's online or offline. Hmm, that's so interesting. I get asked a lot of the same questions, which normally have to do with like, if I want to start a blog, what are the things I have to do to make it immediately successful? And I, I don't know that there are even answers to those questions in today's like publishing world. I guess the thing I wish people would ask more is just maybe how are the, how are the ways that I build and find community? Because I think that really meaningful projects tend to start off with listening. And for most of us, I think that's, the important first step that we don't take. I think it's a lot of like, I have this thing to say and I want to say it. And sometimes somebody's already said it and somebody's already said it really well. And we kind of double up on projects in a way that doesn't need to happen. And this is something that I've learned from being a bit more involved in kind of social justice or activist groups in our area. Um, And I think one of the first things they taught me was like, look around, pay attention, open your eyes, like open your ears. Is this already happening? and You just didn't know about it. Like if it is, go support the people who've been doing that, who've been on the ground before you start a new project that maybe will distract from that group or won't be as supportive as it could. And that's been a really meaningful lesson. And I think I hear from a lot of people these days who want to start projects that already exist on the internet. And I just think like, Ugh, if we could team up together and support each other, a lot of these projects would have the chance to go further and to get more attention than they could have with just one person backing it versus a few people collaborating. So I would love if people would ask more about collaborating and how to research and figure out what already exists and how to support it and be a part of it. Absolutely. That's essentially why I kind of pivoted the Styline, which is Connected's parent company in this direction, because for me, it became more about adding and uh, or less about adding rather and more about using the resources and my experiences to kind of help brands make more conscious decisions. So, I mean, that that totally resonates with me and I'm really glad that you said that. Um, And then to kind of piggyback on that, is there a question that you're going to be asking more in this next phase of your life to other people? Hmm. I think there is. I, I think for the most part, my interest right now, it has to do with people's support systems. I think that one of the things that every, whether it's an entrepreneur or a blogger or just a regular person, I think the things that, that set us apart and are some of the major hurdles to success tend to be support systems and whether or not we have them. Um, and I don't mean you know financial support or financial resources. I mean like actual human support systems because those tend to be the people and the groups that get us through really difficult times that can act as a brain trust of shared and communal information who really help us just navigate the trickier parts of life and business. And I like understanding how people built those and what they look like. And I ask people pretty, pretty, you know, much all the time, literally, how do you build your support systems? Because it's something that gets talked about. But I think a lot of people come up to me and say, like, sure, that's great. They already knew those people or they felt comfortable to ask them. I don't know anybody. How do I even start? And so I like having really practical conversations with people about how they wrote the email where they cold called somebody they'd never met before. Like, how did they handle when somebody wouldn't respond to them or said, no, they didn't want to meet up for coffee. Like, I think really navigating the actual practical part of what it is to build a community and 
how you show up and how you learn to listen and how you learn to become proactive and to actually, you know, create space and time to build this, you know, support system. Those are the things I'm most interested in asking people about right now, because as much as the internet has connected us, and it has, I think a lot of people still feel really isolated. And people write me all the time to say, you know, I spent all my money going to this big conference, and it was so cool, but I didn't walk away with anyone's information. And I don't know anybody new, and I felt really alone. And I'm, I'm really interested in those people. And how do we encourage and teach people how to build community, not just online, but where they live, because I think that is the deciding factor in a lot of people and businesses kind of doing the things that they want to do that make them happy. Absolutely. And I think too, another important thing to call out with that in mind is that it takes time to build. Yes. It's not as really does posting, you know, an invitation to connect on Instagram. Um, And I think if we keep kind of calling that out, um, the, the task or the idea of building a community seems less daunting. Yeah, because fast connection is, it's rarely lasting connection. And I think that that's something that I, we talk about a lot at, at Good Company is, you know, if you reach out to somebody with the specific goal of getting something from them, it never works out. People can always feel that immediately. And if you go in with this desire to just get to a next level through somebody else, it just doesn't become a connection that that is substantive. And I think that a lot of entrepreneurial discussion happening online right now is really about like, how do you build these contacts? How do you network? How do you transform that into additional funding, additional press, additional contacts, new people following you or adding to your newsletter? I think when there's this kind of end number goal, and there's like a, a ticking clock behind it, it just, it kind of just, I don't know, it erases all authenticity. And that's a word I really struggle with. But it it erases that kind of natural organic connection that can happen. Because if you put the time and work into a real connection and a real friendship, that lasts so much longer than any like internet blip or short, you know, follower boost on Instagram, that's going to come from that connection or being tagged by somebody that you want to, to know you like, you have to put the time and the work into making that a real connection, because that lasts much longer. Absolutely. And it's just more human, which we yeah. have to, remember to do at the end of the day with all of our devices. Yeah, the internet does not encourage humanity. <laughs> it really it encourages us like, much more two-dimensional and sometimes even like just very one-dimensional version of people and stories. And we become highlight reels and we become, I don't know, just these like idealized Instagram quote versions of ourselves. And I think that's part of the reason that right now, as I go through this transition, I'm trying to talk really honestly about like feeling really sad or feeling scared or having doubt. Like, did I make a bad decision? Am I doing the right thing? Like, being really honest about how uncomfortable like moments of this can feel, I think is important because when we, when we water things down or when we kind of like round off all the edges, we give this unnatural idea of what it is to go through big changes in life. And they're not always comfortable and they do come from, you know, places of fear and there can be doubt and there can be regret. And I think being really open about those things, it just, it creates more room for nuance and for that gray space. And I think for me, slowing down is so much about like, let's not rush from the white to the black and to from one end of the spectrum to the other. Let's like really, really take our time understanding and walking through all that gray space in between, because that's where I think life really happens. Absolutely. And that's a great kind of lead in to, to one of our wrap up questions, which has become pretty central to 
these conversations. And that is why do you think slowing down a relationship to content will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? I think we feel better anytime we acknowledge what real life feels like. And real life doesn't feel like Instagram. And real life doesn't feel like a blog post that happens at the exact same time every day of every week. Like real life is messy and it's not perfect and it's complicated and sometimes it sucks. And I think that the more honest we are about these things and the more spaces we create to talk about these feelings, like in all of their all of their sides, all of their 3D-ness, I, I think life just feels more enjoyable. And I think a lot of us have been kind of chasing that joy online and we chase it in, you know, hashtags, we chase it in motivational quotes, we chase it in like the perfect Pinterest room picture. And those things aren't real. And I, I think that if we slow down and we talk about like, yes, I created this perfect room and it looks beautiful, but in the process of doing it, you know, I forgot to take care of myself. I forgot to like go for a walk. I forgot to spend time with my kids or my pets or my partner. Like, I think talking about the ups and the downs at the same time, it just, it keeps us present. And for me, like everything about slowing down has been about creating time to be more present. And when you're more present, you're more happy and life is too short not to be present. That was my conversation with Grace Bonnie of Design Sponge. Even though the business will be closing later this year, you can still follow Grace at Design Sponge on Instagram, as she will still remain active on social in this exciting next phase of her career. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, and if you're looking for more on slow content, also be sure to check out our Slow Stories extension column on Create and Cultivate. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and we'll be back later this month with our next episode. Thanks so much for listening.